I, I, I also, I'm glad the kids had a good time at camp, and uh, I was jealous not being at camp. You know, I'm, was, I'm, I'm just a youth pastor masquerading as a senior pastor. <laughs> and um, I know those times are so good. But, you know, I had a really impactful, meaningful, uh, you know, stage this week of, of my life, a stage that all of us Christians hit eventually. I bought a, a large print Bible. <laughs> Look, there, there's no notes in this thing. There's no, like, glossary. This is all just the Bible. The, it's so amazing. Look at that. I, I can't tell you how many times I'm like, I think I remember what this said. I can actually read it today. It's going to be great. <laughs> because I'm a huge nerd, it made me reflect, like, God was faithful during my children's Bible days. God was faithful in my teen Bible, st student Bible. Anybody have an NIV student Bible? Oh, they sold a billion of those. Those were great. Still in the office. And God was faithful through the small print stage, and God's faithful in the large print stage. God's been faithful my whole life. Have to just do audio Bibles eventually, I'm sure. What is it and who will be there? Uh, this is the, the two questions every youth pastor knows are coming for every event. Hey, guys, sign up for the thing. It's going to be great. Trust me. Well, what is it and who's going to be? What do you mean who's going to be there? I'm going to be there. I'm your best friend. You could come. All the cool people are going to be there. No, 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 no. What is it and who's going to be there? That's the question we want to know before we go anywhere, isn't it? If we're dreaming about, thinking about, hearing about something, we want to know what's it going to be like and who's going to be there. And these are the questions that Jesus is fielding as he talks about the kingdom of God all the time. What is it? And who's going to be there? And this passage that we just heard read, it really revolves around those two questions. And maybe a third question that we'll get to before I let you go today. But in verse 18, Jesus is the one who puts out what everybody's thinking. So what, what could I tell you about the kingdom of God? What is it like? Shall, what shall I compare it to? And then he gives some great answers. And then in verse 23, somebody comes up and says, Lord, Will those who are saved be few? We want to know who's going to be there. How do you get in? Who is it? Is it all of us? Is it none of us? Is it some of us? How do I make the cut? And both of these questions, Jesus is answering like practical questions that are circulating in his day. Some thought that the kingdom would be primarily spiritual. We still have this idea. Some people talk about the kingdom of God as synonymous for the sweet by and by in the sky. That's where the kingdom is. It's out there. Someday we'll be there. But that's when we're talking about the kingdom of God, that's what we mean. While other people in Jesus' day and still in ours thought that the kingdom would be primarily physical. So a real king like David or Solomon would come and sit on the real throne in Jerusalem. It'd be more about the physical here and now kind of stuff. And, and there's still that stream that would say, no, 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 let's not think about the sweet by and by in the sky. Rather, let's think about how we make the earth more in line with the kingdom of God. And I think it's an heir to, 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 you know, I think there's gutters on the bowling alley going in both those directions. But as Jesus answered these very contemporary questions, he certainly does it in a way that nobody would expect, that nobody answered them before. Nobody answers questions like that, like this, like Jesus does. And I think more than any theological debate, we'd love to know what is the kingdom of God? Because it's a broken-hearted thing to live here, 
isn't it? It's a brokenhearted thing to live in the kingdom of sin and death, and maybe more so for those of us who trust the Lord. There's disappointment, and there's hurt, and there's people that we love very much that aren't acting right. And there's our own heart where we look in the mirror and go, hey, you're the one not acting right. And, but a lot of, there's a lot of brokenheartedness to live in this kingdom. And not only that, but not to make you homesick, but anybody got the feeling that you were made for more than this? Anybody got the feeling that you look around and you go, I can't even think of anything anymore that I would even try to pursue that I would anticipate would satisfy me? I've achieved things that I thought were going to satisfy me, and they feel like I don't even know what I would go for next. I know I'm meant for more. That's why so many are angry. So many are sad. If there's some good news about a place where we'll feel like we'll belong, then I want to hear it. Is there a place where, where I'll fit in? Is there a place where I'll feel like I'm at home all the time? Like nothing will ever come crashing in? Like I'll be able to move around without fear? Is there a place like that? Well, then Jesus, tell me, what's the kingdom of God like? And also this idea of who's in. It seems like maybe that's a selfish question. You know, hey, I want to know, are there going to be few of us? Are there going to be all of us? What's going on? But I don't know if that is selfish. There might be some, some fear or some humility at the bottom of that kind of question that maybe you've experienced. Is the, does the kingdom of God extend to people like me? Jesus, am, am I going to be fit for the kingdom? Because I know me and I can't think of a standard where I would exclude anybody and include me. <laughs> Who is it? How do you become fit for the kingdom? Is heaven behind some holy veil and curtain that I'll never be able to get behind where there'll just be a velvet rope like all the jokes? Well, a guy died and he went to the pearly gates and there was St. Peter. And he asked him, is it going to be like that? Because I'm not going to have the right answer. Or at least I'm worried I'm not going to have the right answer. Or maybe, is everybody getting in? I don't have to worry about it at all. Jesus, not only am I a little bit worried that... I'm not going to have what it takes to enter into the kingdom of God, but I'm also a little bit worried that I'm sacrificing a lot of stuff right now, and it doesn't matter. Does it matter that I deny myself, that I don't live for myself and I live for you? Over the next few chapters, we're going to deal a lot with this. They're good. These chapters, these next few chapters in Luke are going to revolve around these questions, and we would do well to view this section as an ongoing conversation. Less walking out of here today going, well, now I have details about, these are not blueprints for the kingdom of God. Rather, these are parts of the conversation that allow us to dream, to meditate, to think, to wake up in the middle of the night and go, mustard seed, what does that mean? To wake up in the middle of the night and go, banquet table, huh, how's that going to be? So less like I know exactly what it's going to be like and be in heaven. I was actually thinking about a time in, uh, in my family when the kids were much younger and I was reading the Chronicles of Narnia to them, as you do. Um, and uh, we got to have less TV. We should read something. Chronicles of Narnia, there you go, right? And uh, I was also, personally, I was reading the Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky, because I'm arrogant and think I should read big books. And, um, and I remember reading those at the same time. 
right? And I love Dostoevsky, just brilliant, love it, great stuff. And Brothers K, it's classic, I could preach whole big sermons on it. But I remember in Brothers K, like going through and like, wow, we're 30 pages and we're still describing this room. You know what I mean? And the leather on the chair was red and had some striations. And you're like, all right, let's, let's move along, right? And then you'd read the Chronicles of Narnia, and C.S. Lewis would go, he walked into the room and it felt like Christmas. And you go, nailed it. I know exactly what he's talking about, right? That's the kind of explanation Jesus is giving for the kingdom of God. Not a detailed uh, Russian novelist kind of des- description. Rather, an emotive. This is, I want to get you thinking. I want to get you feeling. I want to get you understanding what you're going to feel like, what's going to happen in your life, and how you're going to live if you decide to follow me. So I wonder if we could think about it like this. When we think about the kingdom of God, if we would not think about blueprints, if we would not think about lists, if we would not think about things to argue about, rather we might think about the parables of Jesus, and especially in this section, as kind of a cloud of information where some of these things don't even seem like they fit together. So is it small or is it big? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Is it something I do? Is it something God does without me? Yeah, that's right. You nailed it. So but, and, and if we try to wrestle with these things, we'll drive ourselves nuts. And more importantly, you'll drive everyone around you nuts. That is not biblical. Um, but rather, if we think about Jesus giving us like some glimpses, some pictures, so that we could dream about what it would be like living in a place where you actually fit in and belong, where you have a relationship with the God of the universe in a friendship face-to-face, like walking around in a garden with him. So... What's the kingdom of God like? Well, I'll blow through these very quickly and could spend a lot of time on all of them, but really four pictures in our section here. First of all, it's like a mustard seed. I've preached, if somebody goes, hey, Grant, would you come to this thing and speak? I go, yep, and I'm talking about the mustard seed. This is my favorite picture. I love it very much. This is just a a little glimpse of it. But the mustard, the big idea of the mustard seed is this, that a mustard seed is not a plant that anybody would plant in their garden. Rather, the mustard seed is a weed. It's something that no gardener would ever decide to plant in his garden. It's planted in a foreign place. Not only in a foreign, not only is it planted in a foreign place, but it's not a volunteer. The guy didn't make all these little rows for his garden and then go, darn it, I didn't put the weed mat down and a mustard seed grew up. No, rather, Jesus says the kingdom of God is like somebody who had all of the plans to his life laid out in little rows, but decided that wasn't working and took something foreign to it and planted it right in the middle. And that's what it's like. That's what the kingdom of God is like in a church, in an in a individual life, or in the world, is that the kingdom of sin, of sin and death in you, in me, in our world is infiltrated with the kingdom of God and planted right in the middle. This guy did it on purpose. And that's true for all of us, that we look at our cool, neat little rows that we are going to grow the garden that is our life. And we go, I'm going to chuck all that and I'm going to live for Jesus. My dreams, my plans, my hopes, the way I'm going to do life, gotten rid of. So I can just plant the kingdom of God right in the middle of all of it. The other thing about a mustard seed is it starts small. Every problem won't be solved immediately. You won't wake up the next day after planting the kingdom of God in your life and going, ah, finally, bliss. Rather, you're going to look back over time and you're going to go, wow, God's really done stuff. The kingdom of God starts small. 
It'll start small in your life. It starts small on the mission field. It'll start small in Seaside. And instead of looking at Seaside and looking at our area and going, ah, the trees collapsed, you might go, oh, there's a chance to plant some seeds. Watch this stuff grow. Not only does it start small, but it gets bigger. It takes over, and this happens in our life too. Can you imagine? I want you to see the the, the lighthearted, even frivolity of this picture that Jesus gives. This garden, have you ever like tilled a garden? You turn that, I'm assuming, I haven't, because yard work is lame. Um, but, uh, but, but Tiffany does that stuff all the time while I'm inside. Um, you till the ground and you make the rows and you make your plants. Can you imagine just watching this over time just get totally destroyed and turns into a place where a tree is sitting? The place where the tree is sitting in your yard looks very different than a well-manicured garden. It grows big. It takes over. The kingdom of God will take your life and turn it upside down. It will wreck your plans. The kingdom of God will take you from a guy who runs a farm to a guy who runs a bird sanctuary. That's just what the kingdom of God does. And if you don't like the idea of God turning your life upside down, then you're, you haven't planted that seed. Like that, That's not what's going to grow in your life. Rather, we are those who look and go, God, please, to your glory and to my benefit, would you just wreck my plans so I can get out of my own way? Would you just grow in me something that I would never expect? Would you grow in our world something we would never expect? It changes the environment. It redefines everything, all laid out in rows, slowly fading to this big tree growing up. It's a whole different place. Think about Peter, from fisherman to first kind of voice of the church. You think about James going from my, my, my half-brothers walking around, running his mouth, we need to come get him and bring him, to being the leader of the church in Jerusalem, Jesus' half-brother. You think, you think about Paul from persecutor to missionary. You think about you without Jesus and you with him. The kingdom of God is like this seed that gets planted in the middle of some place. It, it, it's foreign to it. It's, it's an invasive species in our lives. If you want to be different, if you look at yourself and go, man, I wish I was more what God wanted me to be. First of all, if you don't have that thought, if you're planning on using the kingdom of God to your purposes, well, you're not ready. You need to repent of that. That's called pride. It's not welcome in the kingdom. But when you get to the point where you say, God, would you please change me to be the person that you want me to be? I'm tired of trying to be my, you know, the person I want to be. I want to be the person you want to be. Plant this, the kingdom of God in your life. Follow him and watch over time what develops. If you want to be different, follow Jesus. So the second kind of metaphor is, is in the, the mustard seed parable and it says it grew up like a big tree. We've talked about it a little bit, but this might be the weirdest part of the mustard seed uh, is the tree um, because gardeners don't like weeds, but gardeners really don't like birds. And for Jesus to say, here's what will happen in your life, Jewish community, is that God will grow something that will bring all of the Gentile birds so they have a place to rest. And I go, ah, I don't know if that's the kingdom I was hoping for. And that'll happen for us too. Is there a group of people you wish weren't invited to the kingdom, weren't invited around the table? 
Well, what's going to happen if you follow Jesus is he will grow a life in you where even those people are going to find rest. In the context here, Jesus is talking about the Gentile nations and, and, and the, the Jewish people were absolutely fine with God saving them and nobody else. And we don't have that kind of uh, uh, national nation that we think about as the people of God anymore, but I bet we have people that we would go, I am fine with God saving us and nobody else. But the kingdom of God will destroy that in you. So it's like a big tree. It's like leaven. The kingdom of God, and leaven is kneaded in. I want you to think about a woman who has three big helpings of flour and a little bit of leaven, and it's going to work its way through all of this flour. How does it get in there? It gets worked in, and this is what the kingdom of God is like in your life, is that as it gets worked in, through hours on your knees, through um, prayer and meditation, through fasting and giving and community, through celebration and singing, through Bible study. It gets kneaded and worked into your life. If you have your big mound of flour here and this little thing of yeast over here, this leaven over here that you go, okay, there's the kingdom of God. I'm going to set it over here. Now I'm going to get on with my life. And I don't understand why Jesus doesn't change me at all. That's because you haven't taken that and kneaded it into your life. It has to impact everything about you. It's got to be always on your mind. And as the kingdom works in, take your time, use your muscles. The yeast and the dough become one thing. The chemical makeup of the thing is different. Now you put it in the oven and it'll rise. You know, as an aside, Matthew records in his gospel, Jesus warning the disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. So you put those kind of two ideas together and you go, look, whatever is being needed into your life is what you will become. If the kingdom of God is always on your mind, if the kingdom of God is being applied to every situation, if the question is never, what do I do about this, but rather, how do I honor the Lord in this, then you will change over time. It will get into every cell and every part of your life. But if the kingdom of God is just an aside in your life and actually what you're applying to your life every day is self and greed and lust and hate and us versus them, then that is what will be produced in your life. So beware the leaven of the Pharisees and scribes, Sadducees. But the kingdom of God being worked in, it'll change you. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Later in our passage, fourth um, the kingdom of God is like a banquet table. And the big idea here that would have, again, just shocked people is Abraham, the prophets, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the prophets sitting down with the birds of the Gentiles. One family, a banquet table. Have you had a good Thanksgiving? Have you had a Thanksgiving? We're, you know, we're going to take sign-ups starting in a couple weeks for fall dinner groups, like dinner for eight kind of stuff. I don't know. And sometimes those go well and sometimes they don't. And you go, ah, we took a big swing. But when they go good and it's like eight or ten people around a table once a month, that's church, right? This is fantastic. I love it. I'm glad you showed up. I studied hard. I'm glad somebody's here. But church, like the, the best picture of what the kingdom is going to be like is a group of people sitting around toasting and celebrating and eating and drinking together. 
That's what the kingdom of God is like. There will be a joyous celebration populated by people from everywhere. We'll talk about it in a minute, but from north, south, east, and west, Jesus said. So the second question, who will be there? That sounds great. And I'll even say it like this. That what I just described as the kingdom of God doesn't sound great to everybody. If that sounds great to you, congratulations. God is working in your life. But there are some who look and go, change me? Like it's a club where everybody is invited? That doesn't sound good to me. Where's the exclusive? Where's the VIP? I need the like that metal credit card version of like the kingdom of God. That's what I want. I want to go to the airport where all the general population is and I want to scan my frequent Jesus card and get to the VIP lounge where I don't have to deal with everybody walking around with their shoes off. And Jesus goes, there's no VIP. It's a big table. It grows and it wrecks every idea you had about what you wanted in life. It gets worked into every aspect of your life. So that sounds pretty good to me. So the question then comes to Jesus in the middle of this teaching, well, who will it be? Will those who are saved be few? Great question. And again, Jesus is addressing here a common question of the age. Is it just for some of Israel? Is it for all of Israel? Or is salvation, is the kingdom of God for everybody around the globe? And I wonder what kind of answer this guy wanted. And I wonder what kind of answer you and I would want from that. As you think about who it is that is going to be saved, what kind of answer are you hoping for? Because I've met plenty of Christians that the lower that number, the better for them. Oh, I hope not many are saved at all. Me and my friends and everybody that thinks like me. Well, that's not Jesus' answer at all. What do we want to hear? Do we want to hear everybody's saved? Do we want to hear very few are saved? Do we want to hear, don't worry about it, you're in? Instead, Jesus gives a whole different kind of answer. And his answer revolves around the idea that as you think about who will be saved, all you have to think about is yourself. Jesus says, when somebody comes up and says, um, who, who are saved, will it be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. So he asks a question about the future and about everybody else, and Jesus gives him an answer that's about right now and about himself. And we want to argue about and think about and talk about and sit around and go, who's going to be saved? We want to talk about something out there in the future and we want to talk about who among the whole world is going to apply to. And Jesus looks at him and goes, actually, what you need to do is strive. That's a right now word, not something that happens later and not something that happens for everybody, but right now, just you. And I wonder if you could just start ignoring me. I'll probably ramble on for another 15 or 20 minutes, but if you could just ignore me and instead you would take this and go, what if I stopped worrying about everybody else when I started worrying about my relationship with God? What if I stopped worrying about who and how and the whole thing and instead I just made the focus of my life striving to enter through this narrow door? So Jesus takes a question about the future 
And he answers it with instruction for today. He takes a question about everybody in the world and answers it just for this guy asking the question. Instead of giving a number or a percentage, Jesus wants to communicate the sorrow that many will try and seek and won't be able. He says, oh, there's going to be people that want to get in, but it'll be too late. That's interesting. At that point, they'll cry and go, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, get away, I never knew you. Because let me tell you something that's true. Everybody wants to go to heaven. You're not going to find anybody. Maybe some smart aleck. Maybe, maybe one of the punks. I grew up with a lot of people like that, yeah. Um, but deep in their heart, everybody hopes there's an afterlife where we'll be happy. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but not everybody wants a king. Everybody wants a kingdom. Not everybody wants to submit to a king. So as this guy wants to talk theology, Jesus goes, forget about all that. Would you just know that there are going to be those who miss out because they didn't want a king? So Jesus says, strive. This is a word that we get our word like agonized from. It's, it's agonizethe. It means make every effort. What it means is to enter a contest, to get in the battle. This is a word you might use if you're rallying the troops. And you go, hey, there's guys over there on the other side of the battlefield, and they want to get us, and they're the bad guys, so I need you to get in there and strive. Try. Mix it up. It means enter the contest. It means stop sitting on the sideline like one of the judges. Stop, you know, with the hot dog and extra large soda going, this guy's not any good at football. Get some pads on and get in there. Stop being a critic and start being a player. It's a word that means sign up for the contest. What's the king? Who's going to get into heaven, Jesus? Would you stop asking questions like that? And instead, would you be about the business of striving? Because remember, Dallas Willard's great encouragement. Grace is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. You are not going to earn your way into the kingdom but it's not going to happen by accident either. And look, you are going to strive for something, aren't you? This week, you're going to strive for something. You're going to try to do something this week. It's going to be your focus. You have goals. You have a list. Anybody got a list that already has stuff on it that you're hoping to accomplish next week? Yep, me too. The list never gets done. At the end of one week, I write the start of next week's list. I come in on Monday morning and go, oh, no. And, and start from there. I'm sure you're the same. There's plenty to do. There's lots of things to strive for. There's goals we want to get to. You're going to strive for something. You're going to sign up for some contest. You're going to be in some battle. And Jesus goes, if you want to know who's in, would you be the one who just strives? Try. Lean in. Get to know Jesus. Stop making all this other stuff what you're striving to do. And instead... Get to know Jesus. Instead of trying to figure out who's in or how many will make it, focus your attention on the life you want to live. So we go, strive for what exactly? Well, Jesus said, strive to enter the narrow door. What a cool image. I love the image of the narrow door because here's the truth. 
I'm not a visual person. I do my best. I write poems and junk. Um, but here's the big idea, I think. There are a million ways to, be, to live for yourself. You know what I mean? Like You can be like total dirtbag to religious critic and judgmental and whatever. And you can have this sin or that sin. And you can live for money or you can live for you know, uh, beauty or you can live for... There's a million, a million ways that you can be a sinner. You can live for yourself. Not only that, there's a million ways to live a meaningful life in the kingdom. You could be like, sell everything and go to the mission field. Or you could be like the CEO who is constantly talking about Jesus in board meetings. Or you can, um, you can have different personalities. We need super introverted Christians and super extroverted Christians. There's not one personality. There's not one hobby. You can totally like disc golf and get into heaven. You can totally play the guitar or the bassoon. Nobody cares. Like, there's lots of ways to live a Christian life. There's lots of ways to live a, a, a life away from God. There's lots of ways to live a life in the kingdom, but there's only one door in the middle, and that is Jesus. You will never be so religious that you enter through the narrow door. You will never be so popular. You will never be so smart. You will never know so much. You will never be so holy that you enter into the kingdom of heaven. Rather, Jesus says, it is about a narrow door. So what if we strive to be good Good's not the narrow door. Jesus and Jesus alone is the door. Jesus' instructions have urgency that I know this is familiar stuff and I want you to hear the urgency in Jesus. And I want you to hear the urgency for you, but I also want us to hear the urgency for our world. How important, not just, I mean, we have missions Sunday. Missions is great. We send kids to camp. That's all great. But I'm talking about not just missions as a subcategory of what the church does, but you remember my favorite quote from Emil Brunner that the church exists by mission like fire exists by burning. Like if we are not on mission. Now that doesn't mean necessarily taking tracks down someplace and passing them out at the mall. Although if you feel led to do that, you go for it and we will support you. Please invite us. Some of us will come with you. But that we would live our lives on mission in the kingdom. I want this to have such urgency, such worry, such holy passion when we hear Jesus say these things that we go, oh my gosh, I cannot be satisfied being the only one I know who's got this mustard tree growing. Jesus says this is time sensitive. You know, we can, we can right now we can ask questions like, well, it's have a discussion about who's really in and who's really not. But there will come a time, Jesus said, when the master of the house will get up and bolt the door. There's a time on the calendar. And I don't know when it is. Elsewhere in the scriptures, we're given the image of, it's like the ark in the days of Noah. When people were just going around watching the crazy dude build an ark. But then it really did start raining. And it'll be like that. There's a sense of urgency. There's also a sense of tragedy. I want this to break your heart. You know, Jesus doesn't with any, Jesus doesn't teach this with any like flippancy, with any um, arrogance as he says, look, there's going to be people who end up where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And guys, those are both images of regret because there will be a time when everybody sees very clearly who the king is. 
when everybody sees very clearly who the Savior is. And if you need to hear that for you, then please repent today. And if you need to hear it for the lost, where today's the day you start loving them and stop judging them, just know that there's plenty of judgment coming for them. They don't need it from you. What they need is the invitation to this kingdom. Introduce them to this narrow door. It even says that the lost will look and see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is great. This is so much sorrow. I can't, I can't bear with it. I don't even know. I don't think I grew up with that image in my head that it would just be over there. Guys, would you serve him now? And you see the arguments that people will make that Jesus says, look, some people will be demanding. It'll be a matter of they'll, they'll want their rights then. They'll, they'll knock on the door and say, open up. And Jesus will answer, I don't know you. Not you're not good enough. Not you didn't do the right things. Not the guys in here are better than you, but I didn't know you. It's not about spending your life learning to be religious enough. It's about spending your life getting to know Jesus. It's simply faith in him, walking faithfully with him. Would you turn to him right now? If you have been wandering from him, would you return to him right now? All of the things that we're striving for just aren't going to matter much longer. It's only going to be striving for a relationship with Jesus. They're going to say, it's, it's our will. We're demanding. Let us in, Jesus. And, and also, they will make an argument for proximity. We shared meals with you. We heard you teach. And Jesus will answer, I don't know where you come from. You are from another kingdom. Proximity isn't the way. It's not that you're the member of a church or you hear preaching regularly or, or that you listen to the right podcasts. Almost everybody in our culture knows who Jesus was in one way or another. You're a little bit further from him, I think, if you were just around him and never followed him. Rather, would you follow him? There, there's a sorrow there. These are hard words for me to preach. I, I like preaching about the mustard seed. I like preaching about the banquet table. I don't like preaching about the closed door. I don't like preaching that someday there will really be a time when how you've lived your life, not whether you've sinned or not, but rather did you find Jesus and serve him? That will be the only question that matters. That's really a day on the count. There's one more question that I think we need to deal with that isn't explicit, but it certainly is implicit in this passage, and that is, how does God feel about the rebel? If there is this... So, you know, something that I think is an argument, not an argument, but kind of an ongoing conversation in, among theologians, is this a binary thing, uh, being in the kingdom? Is it yes or no? Or is it more a narrative thing? Is it more like we're on a journey kind of thing? Which one is it? And I would say that that's a great example of both are true. There was a, you know, is, is my marriage binary? 
you're married or you're not, or is it a journey and a, and, and a story and all that? I would say it's both. I could tell you about when I met Tiffany. I could tell you how we fall in, fell in love. I could tell you about all the, the 26 years of marriage and, and how our relationship has changed and grown. But there really was a time when we weren't married. Then there's a time where we, where we were. And I think that our relationship with God is like that, where it really is true. Are you his or are you not? And also, there's this growing tree and this kneading yeast, and it is a story, and it is a journey, and you're going to grow, and you're going to change, and you're not the same guy now that you will be in 10 years or the guy you were 10 years ago. But there is this question, if there is an in and out in any way, how does Jesus feel about the lost? How does Jesus feel about the rebel? How does Jesus feel about those who are outside that door when the bolt goes down? Because you're allowed to feel about those people exactly like Jesus feels about those people. And if Jesus stands aloof and arrogant going, ha, gotcha. You, I gave you chances and you didn't follow me. <laughs> Weeping and gnashing of teeth. If that's how Jesus feels, then you get to be arrogant and mean too. But Jesus is the exact opposite of that, and we have to be as well. Is he angry with the lost? Is he aloof as people enter eternity outside the kingdom? I mean, I would encourage you to look how, and see how Jesus feels about Jerusalem. Jerusalem, full of corruption, fallen Jerusalem, sinful in the worst way. In verse 22, it says Jesus journeying towards Jerusalem. Can I tell you that Jesus is still journeying towards sinners? He's pursuing the lost, and we have to be too. Verse 33, Jesus says, I'm going to keep going to Jerusalem because it isn't right for a prophet to die outside of Jerusalem, which is such irony. Shouldn't Jerusalem be the safest place for a prophet of God? Shouldn't that be the one place where the prophet is safe? And yet Jesus and prophets died other places. Jesus isn't making some grand statement about where a prophet has to die. Rather, he's just going, man, Jerusalem is such a mess. That's where I'm going to die. Verse 34 there's this lament, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. He says, how many times did I want to gather you? How does Jesus feel about the lost? Here's how Jesus feels about the lost. Recognizes their sin, but does not desire, does not, is not glad to send them away, but rather says, oh, how I wish and you know why this is hard? Because it seems like Jesus isn't getting his way. And I think that's okay. I think that's right. That Jesus says, look, I have wanted to gather you. Just like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. I've wanted to just bring you home and hold you and love you. Remind you that you're mine. But you wouldn't let me. You were not willing. How does Jesus feel about the lost? Heartbroken. We might have this image of God that is so strong and so holy and also his knowledge, his foreknowledge is so perfect that how could he ever feel sad? How could he ever feel, you know, disappointed at anything? And yet we have scripture after scripture of 
things like this of God just going, I am brokenhearted that people are choosing to live without me. You are allowed to feel about the lost exactly like Jesus feels about the lost. He calls us to strive, to do all we can to enter the narrow door so that we might enter the kingdom of God. But you can be sure that he has already done everything necessary for that to happen. Is it our will that saves us? No. But Jesus has already done everything necessary. We just say yes. Just say yes. It's a proposal. Will you live with me? Will you be my bride? Just say yes. But most people aren't willing. He calls us to deny ourselves, but not before he has sacrificed himself greatly. He calls us to follow, but not before he has led us in love. He calls us to repent, but not before calling us and making it possible for us to do so. So turn to him now. If you aren't a disciple of Jesus, would you begin a relationship with him today? I don't know what you're hoping for in eternity, but there's only one door. And your mistakes aren't going to get in the way. Your sin's not going to get in the way. And your previous attitudes aren't going to get in the way. But what will get in the way is simply your pride that refuses to follow Jesus. And if you are following Jesus, but it's just so much better, so much, uh, not better, it's so much easier um, to make the kingdom of God just part of your life and to strive for other things. Everybody else is doing it. It makes us so weird to strive for the kingdom of God and nothing else. But if you've been striving for other things and found yourself dissatisfied, would you return now? Would you reject all that other stuff? Live for him and him alone. There's a lot of ways to live in the kingdom of God, but there's only one door in. That's a relationship with him. Can I ask you, what are you needing into your life every day? What is it? Is it pride? Is it self? Is it, is it greed? Is it anger? What is it that you are needing into your life every day? Is it fear? What are you striving for? What is number one on that hit list for your week next week? If you know Jesus but are striving for anything else, would you know that there's a banquet ahead full of life and full of plenty and full of joy? And the only thing that keeps us out is our pride. Could I just give you a minute just in silence and then we'll play a song? But could I leave you with this, that Jesus has already made every effort to save you. And the question is, will you make every effort to follow him? Will you follow him? What's in the way? Repent of it now. Heavenly Father, as we think, as we evaluate our lives, as we think about what you've done for us, as we think about these beautiful pictures of what heaven will be like, God, I'm looking forward to, to you fully controlling my life. I'm looking forward to um, a banquet table that's full of full of joy, Lord, a, a wonderful family meal filled with people from east and west and north and south. God, it sounds great. And I think we all admit that pride creeps in 
gets in the way. Lord, if there are things, if there are attitudes that we need to push aside, or God, if today's the day where we just need to turn and follow you for the first time, really receive the abundant life that you've offered, then Lord, may today be that day. We love you, God. Thank you for overcoming so much that we might say yes to you. Thank you for pictures of heaven, Lord. I'm looking forward to this section of the passage, this section of the scriptures where we get to just think about the kingdom of God a lot. Lord, thank you for the way it's growing in our midst now and for the way it'll find fulfillment in eternity. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.